Your host hasn't seen everything in sports, but sometimes he acts like it, and his guests probably have. Now, the host of Scorecard Scribblings, your sports guy, Brent Weber. Well, a good Wednesday evening to all of you out there listening to Scorecard Scribblings tonight. My name is Brent Weber. Thanks for joining us for uh, the interview tonight with a, uh, a friend of mine who's been around and he's done even more cool things than I have. I, li- I really like that about this guy. And just, But I first want to say welcome to you, whether you're listening on the podcast, um, Scorecard Scribblings, which you can download in many places, or on our home station, KCNR, here in Shasta County, Reading. Thanks to my producer, Jared King, always uh, gets me on the air sometimes. Sometimes I don't get him off the air on time, but that's, that's not his, his fault. So some things never change. I've always been able to to stretch things that way. So wherever you are during this time of COVID-19, jonesing for your your sports, this will have to do for just a little while. This guy that you're going to meet tonight, you have seen him, you have heard him. If you know or love anything about horse racing, um, I got to say, this is going to sound really weird because he looks exactly the same as he did when I worked with him many years ago. But for more than two decades now, he has been a part of the TVG scene. And that is to those folks who love the uh, the world of uh, thoroughbred racing and horse racing uh, in general. That's the home to to that world and really the pioneering spot for making uh, making televised racing and uh, kind of coordinated professional gambling and so on in one place. And it's been a phenomenal place. It's not the only place, but it's probably where many of you know our guest tonight. I'm going to quickly introduce him and then we're going to, I'm going to throw it to some, to a little bit of your podcast, but I want to get to our guest tonight, Ken Rudolph, uh, joining us uh, via the 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 airwaves tonight from your home are you in southern california living now again ken yeah yeah brother i uh, we moved back to our home that we uh, we've kept here in los angeles we moved back uh, last year how you doing man i'm doing good uh, it's really great to hear your voice i can just uh you're one guy who i've always been able to picture smiling happy um <laughs> and and making the most out of life and uh i i'm looking forward to chatting with you a little bit um um, how is life for you? Because you you spent a lot of years putting in the, the I mean, you started back in 99 with TVG. You did a lot, done a lot of other things we'll touch on, but um, you stepped away, came back home to Sacramento. Tell us uh, you know, how you're doing a lot, because some of our listeners up here in the North State may remember you from your time and, on um, Good Morning Sac and doing the morning news down there on TV. Oh, yeah, man, I had uh, the best time. I Yeah, I yeah, I don't even know where to start because um, a lot of it does start with the two years that I spent with you and uh, at OCN, which I thought was really just an exceptional place to be, especially for all of us at that time. And uh, it really had a huge impact on my work ethic and and also how to try to you know enjoy the journey. And I remember so much watching you. You go out and you surf and you go shoot a bunch of stuff. And you come in, you all have to edit, do your show, and I'm like, then you'd go and spend time with your family. I'm like that dude is not wasting a minute. <laughs> so I kind of try to do the same thing. So I've always been super interested in everything that's happening. And TVG was really a great opportunity in 99 to, to explore something that was an absolute mystery to me and um, be able to see the world and, and uh, really share and, and a really great passion and share my excitement with the world has really been uh, an absolute treat. Being able to take the eight years that I took for my family to go into Sacramento and, and be home was really a, I just, it was so fortunate when that came along because we were, 
our son had just been born, and we were like, I don't want to put him in daycare here in Los Angeles. It's just so expensive, and schools and everything, and our family's in Sacramento, and, and my agent called. She's like, hey, do you want to go home and, and host the show? <laughs> Good day, Sacramento. And I'm like, yeah, who doesn't want to host that show? And she's like, yeah, and you'll do the news for CBS while you're up there. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so well, my family was back there, and I was like, this is fantastic. And um, so we got to go back home, and I'd never anchored the news. So that was a chance for me to really try to, you know, add another tool and just become, just be better in general, just be better at my job and my profession. And I really loved the fact that uh, it was a complete immersion therapy. Like, they threw me into everything, <laughs> every single element, whatever skill set I may possess. They were like, yep, go do that. Mm, go do that. You want to do a radio show? Go do that, too. And so if for eight years, man, it was crazy. And so I was just really, really excited to have the opportunity. I made the most of it. And I came back here to Los Angeles with new opportunities and just a brand new energy and just ready to continue doing the work. Very cool. Well, before we get too far down the road, I want folks to know about uh, one of your new projects, because it is one of those that's going to kind of pull all those skills together for you into the world of podcasting, which obviously we're doing, I'm doing here. Mine's, mine's not as slick, you know, mine's not all this, uh, this uh, slick, uh, uh, yeah. No, yours is good because you got a cool open and all that. Mine's not as slick as some of those out there. Mine is basically us talking. Um, but yours is, I'm really enjoyed it because again, you bring the Ken Rudolph, uh, interest. I mean, you know, you have a, you have a, a passionate interest in learning about what the inside, what's driving people. And I like that about you. Um, uh, and you're bringing it to your podcast, on it's believing horse racing with Ken Rudolph B L E A V I N and I want to listen to a little bit of uh, of your one of the early episodes that you've done let's listen to that Jared and then we'll uh, ask Ken about it go ahead Jared not until September how are you guys dealing with this unprecedented uh, upheaval this change in our industry as far as getting your horses ready for the biggest day of the year well I think the the, the hardest part was um, when all of this was happening, Kenny, I thought, man, how are they going to run races without the crowds and it's coming down? I just can't imagine a Kentucky Derby without 100,000, 150,000 screaming, partying fans. And I just sort of, I think the hardest part was to, I was a little bit in denial thinking if they cancel it, uh, this is going to be horrible because I've got three really top, top derby contenders this year. And, uh, but uh, when they postponed it, I was like, well, that's good. It's not that is a, that's a little bit yeah. of the believe horse racing podcast with Ken Rudolph. And I, and I really wanted to pull that out because you don't have to be a diehard horse racing uh, fan to know the voice and to know when you mentioned Bob and horse racing, we're talking about Bob Baffert and you had Bob and Jill on. And if you, if you were to tune it back to 99, when you started and he was kind of one of those guys that, Oh my God, nobody can talk to Bob Baffert. Um, now he's calling you Kenny here 20 years later. <laughs> the, I think that's just one of the beautiful aspects of, of horse racing. It really is. I believe the, the center of the, Everything revolves around horse racing. Everyone goes to the track. And so when I was exposed to that, people like Bob 
I, I don't know why he did. And we talked about that on the podcast. He gravitated towards me. He said his mom loved me, just loved my energy and my enthusiasm because I like all of them. They do something I can't possibly imagine doing. I don't understand that culture. So I thought everything he did was amazing. And the interesting thing about Bob, Bob actually ended up helping me to get another job, although he had no idea. So working at TVG and being able to meet Bob Baffert and be close with his family and his wife actually was my, uh, she was our co-host on TVG with me, Jill, before she left and married Bob. How about that? So we always met each other. And Jill's fantastic. She's just an amazing person. But this, the, the situation with Bob is I was um, working at TVG and then Fox Sports came to me and they said, hey, we want to do this show called Best Damn Sports Show, period. And we want you to come in and audition to be one of the, end of the correspondents. And I'm like, okay, great. So I, it happens to be the weirdest day, Brent. It happens to be a day where I go in and they make me wait in the gym room, uh, green room. <laughs> and so I had just come off of working with, with all of you guys at, at OCN and we got to cover the Angels. And so this is right after Mo Vaughn signs the huge free agent contract and comes out and works uh, and comes out and plays in Anaheim. So that whole time he's there, I'm interviewing him. You know how we're all pretty much in with the Angels every day there at OCN. We're like right next door to them. So I walk into this green room. To wait for this audition, Mo Vaughn and Bob Baffert are sitting in there. They both get up. I'm like, dude, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what are you guys doing here? The executive producer walks around the corner and sees me talking to Mo Vaughn and Bob Baffert like I know him because I do. And he's like, holy smokes, you're exactly what we want. You know everybody. And I'm like, no, I just know these guys. I don't know anyone. I just know these two guys. But that guy thought that I knew people because Bob's like, hey, dude, what are you doing? And Mo Bond's like, hey, brother, what's going on? And the guy's like, this guy needs to be on our show. And that's how I ended up getting like that extra little push that you need to get through the door for situations like that because I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I knew those guys. It's crazy. Isn't that something? And it is a crazy part of um, you know any of the media business uh, businesses, immediate, uh, my, uh, my, my grammar is probably not going to work there, but, but the point is, um, you know, it's like, uh, I think Vince Lombardi got the quote way back before you and I, even I was born. Um, <laughs> I, sh- I should say, uh, you know, when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. And I think that's, you know, something that, uh, I've always tried to do. And I know, you know, you've always been real cool about that. And that's an example of, you know, be comfortable even when you're in an unfamiliar place and this industry can be good to you. I'm going to take a break because I do want to talk about a bunch of stuff. Now you're going to hear going to breaks, some pretty cool music because that is another aspect of uh, Ken Rudolph that I, that I love. I've always loved his music. Uh, Mama's gravy, find them on YouTube. You were doing that already um, when we worked together back in the day. And I know you've, uh, you love it. So we'll talk a little bit about that too, when we come back. But as we go to break, we're going to listen to a little bit of Mama's gravy. My guest is Ken Rudolph, the Believe in Horse Racing podcast. You know him from TVG, you know him from uh, Fox Sports, and you know him from, uh, well, anchoring uh, the morning news in Sacramento. We'll be back with Ken Rudolph. Stick with us on Scorecard Scribblings. Sweet life. 
So do you recognize the voice? Uh, you certainly should recognize the groove. That's Mama's Gravy with Ken Rudolph, my guest tonight on Scorecard Scribblings. Brent Weber, thanks for joining us. And I can, I, I, you know, I loved that about you, uh, that you explored your music even when you were, uh, you know, a guy doing sports and you didn't just throw 100% of yourself at one thing. I think it's real important to people in our industries. Yeah, I, I think it is as well. I really feel like you have to have some other passion that kind of continues to fuel you and, and drive you and also kind of give you that respite. Um, and like I said, man, I know it sounds crazy, but behind your back at OCN, we called you Obi-Wan <laughs> all the time because we're like, that dude goes out and you had to surf in the morning and then you were like, good for the day. You're like, okay, now I have to go out here because we got to go shoot all this stuff and edit all this stuff. And we're doing seven-minute sports segments. Yeah. And, you know, it's a work. And, uh, and so I was like, okay, I have this passion, and, and I just always wanted to make sure that I, I never let a moment pass by um, where I wasn't somehow trying to devote myself to that. And the friendships that I had, the guys that I met in Sacramento during the time when I had that musical awakening, I was like, hey, that's what I want to do. I want to I I play guitar. And so I met these guys, and they were like, yeah, I want to do that too. And so then you have this brotherhood, and, and that fuels everything. And so even when I was 400 miles away, in in Los Angeles and Orange County, I was like, those are my guys, and I got to still remain connected. So music was that thing that allowed me to remain connected with all those guys, and, and that's a connection, a brotherhood that we still share to this day. And um, I think everyone should have a little something that, I don't care if you make crafts and sell them on Etsy, I don't care what you do, but you got to have something else that you feel passionate about that keeps you going. I'm, I'm lucky to have quite a few things. I think it's a, a really great observation, Ken. I can remember hearing um, a uh, at a press conference for Terry Donahue. You remember Donahue was the head football coach at UCLA, and he was UCLA. in a, yeah. yeah. And and remember, and he was from OC, lived in OC too, right? And he um, when he left, he shocked people because they all figured, oh well, he must be going to get you know NCAA. What did he do wrong? And he really, you know, he knew he was going to be able to work in TV. He knew that he uh, could work in, but he was done. He'd been to 10 straight bowl games, something like that. And I can remember him at his press conference saying, you know, if you're lucky in life, and a mentor had told him this, if you're lucky in life, you don't have just one career. You don't just have one passion. And he said, um, and and that stuck with him. And I thought that was really cool. Um uh, and I, so I think that's kind of allowed people like you and me to leave the door open to try different things. For those who don't know, Ken started off, as you know, a musician, as you heard there, a sportscaster, as we've talked about, uh, and, and then a, a specific sports world, uh, a totally different sports world um, in the world of horse racing for so long, but never lost your feel. And I think that balance for doing other things um, makes us more uh, adept or just more available emotionally to do something like, uh, you know, do a morning newscast, uh, do a best damn sports show period, or for that matter, in your case, even uh, do films and, and things like that. I mean, I worked Shakespearean actor, Shakespeare in the park, but I never worked in a movie with Brad Pitt, um, you know, or uh, Bruce Almighty or anything like that. So you, so you've done all these things. I think it's good. 
I've, I've never been, I've been to, I did one stage production, <laughs> and it scared the absolute crap out of me, man. So, like, the fact that you could do that. Shakespeare on stage, there's no way. Dude. I was, yeah. I was. <laughs> I've died many times on stage and killed, and you have to at least die to, to you got yeah. if you you're going to die in every show you, maybe twice or three times if you play multiple characters but that was my segue into your time in LA and I'm sure hopefully you're still doing some of that stuff but those are a couple of the films that you got a chance to work on Oh yeah it was that's more of a you know it's uh it's weird when I say cuz people think uh, that I'm I'm not being completely truthful but it is a very much a, a circumstantial thing uh, I did not come down here with any intention at all to be um, in movies and TV shows. In fact, the first time my agent asked me about that, I was like, I don't want to do that because I really felt at that time when I came down in 97, that was superficial. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, just try it and, and just see. So I did a couple and I was like, eh, that's not really my thing, but it, it's easy. So sure, okay, I'll do it. And and then I, along the way, there were a few where I was like, oh, that's super cool. I want to do that. Okay. And But for the most part, I have to say, it was just something that I did to see if I could do. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but then I got to a point where they were like, hey, we'd like you to be an actor. We want you to take these classes. And, and I was like, hey, uh, that's disrespectful to somebody who really is an actor. I'm not an actor. I don't want to be an actor. So I'm not going to waste your time by taking this class and waste my time. That's a space where somebody else could be in here. But I do appreciate that. And um, so I kind of made that break <laughs> in between the two. But, I mean, if they need someone to come in and play a reporter or whatever, I'm like, man, I don't care. Sure, that takes me five minutes. I'll do that. But I didn't have that that little push to make that another one of those passion projects for me where I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an actor. Right. Like, I could submit like you. But you, you would, to Shakespeare. Right, but you wouldn't have known unless you did it. Like, I always knew that was something I wanted to do. So, you know, and it's my daughter is a professional actor. And you wouldn't have known until you did it. Now, your son, when he's older, if he wants to go into acting, you at least got some chops, man, behind the scenes. You can help him through it. And and you could help him through it with your performance experience anyway. But but uh, you never know where that is going to be useful experience for you on the other side. That, no, that's a very good point. Uh, the thing that I have been helping my son with, he's nine and he's like the best dude ever. Um and uh, but I love sports, and obviously I grew up playing baseball and football, and uh, so I've been managing his little league team since he was five, and that has been the absolute best time I think I've ever had. Uh, now I'm I'm growing into the role. I'm an intense individual, so the first couple of years I'm sure the parents probably still like, what is wrong with that dude? Um, but now I've learned kind of how to understand how to understand kids a little bit better, and they're not like me. Um, but my son, he just really took to it and he loves baseball and especially now with everything shut down and you know we lost our little league season but he and i still have this thing where we go out and play catch seems like almost every other day i throw batting practice until my back hurts i catch him when he wants to pitch because he loves to do it and he's learning how um so that's just so much fun like that's the thing that i really love sharing with him is that teaching him about how to how to work a little bit how to push a little bit and and brent I'm going to be a dad here for a second. He had the greatest moment. So we played, you know, we had one game of spring Little League season before everything shut down uh, around March 15th. So our season started. We had a, a practice game, and it's my first time as the, the, the manager in the spring. So I've managed fall ball. Fall ball's abbreviated, not quite as intense. And anybody shows up, you can manage. <laughs> spring, you got to have 
qualifications, right? So I finally earned my right to be the spring manager. And I drafted all these kids, right? I, there's 12 kids, and I watched them all in their tryouts. I looked at their charts. I talked to their former coaches. And then we were like, okay, we want those 12 kids. So it was really a, a, an emotional attachment for me with these kids. The first kids I watched, and I, I selected, and I talked to the parents. I just loved it. We finally get to our first game. And, um, guys, the kids are just great. They do a great job. We come back from three deficits. My son pitches two innings. He strikes out three. And he's just he, – everything we worked on for the past four months, like coming out, and I'm like, look at this little dude. He's so competitive. We're losing. It's now six to five. Uh, there's a way bases loaded in front of him, two outs, and he gets the single that drives in the two runs that wins the game. Yeah. I just stand there, and I'm watching him as he's celebrating with his friends. And that you know what I'm saying yeah. when that kid has that moment when they did something and they know it was all good, and their friends are like, "Yeah!" and everyone's going crazy. It's their first win. He knows he pitched well, and he got the hit. And I just was like, "Man, this is the best thing ever." And the hardest and, thing is to know, just let him love that with his friends because you're a part of it no matter what. But, but you know, we got to just then let him love it. You're so That's what I did, Brent. I stood over to the side. I'm so glad. You, I'm like, I stood to the side, and I, and I just watched them mob my son. And my son mobbed his teammates because the guys ahead of him got hit. And they were just, like, appreciative of each. They were just, and it was so beautiful. <laughs> I was so depressed <laughs> in the season. <laughs> it just so fun. And, you know, you see them overcome little things like that, and I was just so excited for them and, and for myself. I love being a part of that. So, you know, I, hopefully I can continue to help him with that aspect of it, showing him that if he works hard, you know, he's going to be able to get positive results. And his, he and his friends are going to remember that for a long time. They're going to remember that first win, I think, for the rest of their lives. No doubt. This is Ken Rudolph, and it's spelled, by the way, R-U-D-U-L-P-H. If you want to find him on Instagram, Twitter, at Mr. Ken Rudolph TV. You know him as, uh, 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 you know him from Sacramento TV. You know him from TVG Network. He's got his new podcast, Believe in Horse Racing with Ken Rudolph, the ultimate outsider's insider, they tell us. Uh, we'll be back to talk a little bit more about a day that will, a race that will live in infamy at Churchill Downs. We'll talk a little bit about that. He knows what I'm going to ask him about. It's on one of his. Uh, podcast as well when we return with ken rudolph and scorecard scribbling stay with us a little mama's gravy as we come out of break that is uh, ken rudolph's uh, band, his jammer. You guys still playing? Is that always available to you, Ken Rudolph? Uh, can you go back to the gravy if you need to? <laughs> um, well, we're always brothers, and yeah, we do things only periodically. Like we did a show three years ago to celebrate 20 years since we put out our first um, CD together, um, and then we've had other projects together. I have a separate band with guys from that band called Tipsy Hustlers, which I did, and then. I think we're going to do a show in two years, 2022. We'll get together for 25 years. So yeah, we are we're always in communication and we talk and text. And when we come, when I come to town, we hang out. So as a brotherhood, that's that's not going anywhere. So those of you who love uh, love the music, you know Ken Rudolph from there. Of course, I know Ken from his career as a sportscaster and. Um, 
and and then he was gone. Uh, we were working together. He was this young guy, and then all of a sudden he went to horse racing, and it blew me away because I can remember Ken. Um, I'm like, what do you know about horses? And uh, all these years later, I'm reading the uh, on your Believe in Horse Racing podcast. The description it says you're the ultimate outsiders insider for horse racing, and why did horse racing and Ken Rudolph work so well on TVG? I think only one word, maybe um, excitement, or maybe even that word could be passion. Um, I, I, I don't know. I have something about something about me where if I like something, man, I get into it. And I, I don't pull back. I'm all in. And horse racing is that thing where once it gets you, it gets every fiber of your being. It is unbelievable. Now, the question that you kind of posed in initially is, I didn't know anything about it. Um, I wasn't really even a fan of the culture because, to me, the culture was kind of exclusionary. I'm like, that culture doesn't include me as a black man. But then I did a little a tiny bit of research. My agent came to me with the TVG proposal, and I did some research. And I was like, wait a minute, there's a huge African-American history in horse racing. Mm-hmm. And then one night I went to Los Alamitos. And I saw just so many different ethnicities at the track. I'm like, everybody's here. Wait a minute. Then I went to Hollywood Park, the old Hollywood Park, mm-hmm. which was there for 75 years in Inglewood, California. And I went to Hollywood Park, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Literally everybody is here. And I was like, this is, this is definitely the center of the universe. This is where I want to be. I think this is where everything is happening. So that's why it appealed to me. And I think because it's so universal and I am – so outgoing, even though I'm kind of an introvert, I'm a weird guy like that. But when I'm around things that I don't understand, I want to know. Mm-hmm. So I'm open to questions and I'm like, hey, what is this? What's that? What are you doing there? How does that taste? What is that? Doing? So I guess just me being outgoing and really being a passionate person, I think that's what made it all come together, that relationship between me and horse racing. And you mentioned something there. In a way, um, I likened it to, because in my experience, it was the same way, though, obviously. I only covered a few things when I was at CNN, but I was, I was, I thought it was a rich man's game. And um, then when you get to understand it, sure, there's, there's money at the top. Doesn't happen without those people. But most of the people involved in horse racing it is a game of passion. Uh, not unlike the boxing world, um, in a weird way, not unlike yep. the surfing world. I mean, there are people who are so, there's so many people that have to get you to that point. But, um, um, and, and, and even in Southern California, where I think it's hard, you probably really feel the pain of this when things like, when we see tracks closing um, prior to even, you know, not talking about what's going on now, but the problems at Santa Anita Park and they, they may be opening this weekend. I haven't heard anything. You may have heard something new, but Hollywood Park's not there. Um, you know, we don't have Del Mar like we did before. Things like that. It kind of breaks your heart a little bit because it's the big event of just going out there. Whether or not it's a big event, it always feels like something special when you go to the track. You are 100% correct. Um, by the way, they will be running at Santa Anita. They've finally been given the green light and they're going to start on friday so i do believe friday is the 15th wow so they're going to be allowed to come back um churchill downs will be back so all these little tracks are kind of rolling their way back in and so slowly but surely they're going to be back in the mix um but it it is really a labor of love for them for lack of a better term man they i i realized how 
you know, being there and covering for 12 years, just every day being immersed in horse racing and going out to the, the barns in the backside every morning, you know, at five o'clock in the morning and that's, they're ready to go and that's their day is starting. And it's just, that's a huge responsibility. If those people don't show up every day at the stable, how are those horses going to take care of themselves? Right. So extremely important, that relationship that they have uh, is extremely important. He's the host of Believe in Horse Racing, and uh, you were talking about his time at TVG, and I say it covers over two decades, because, yeah, you took time off, but I know it was always part of you, and you guys, you've come back, and you do some stuff here and there, I understand, um, and I'm sure if they called you, you'd you'd be right there. Hey, maybe you can give me any more tips. Uh, they are still running at La Salle, uh, but I noticed, and this is kind of a serious side note, but something that's really kind of hurt the industry in California in the last few years are the death of Ray horses. They had a couple of more horses put down um, Los Alamitos uh, today, uh, or I guess this week. Um, what's going on with that? And is that, or is that just, we're hearing about it more? Uh, that's a combination of a lot of things. And I would never want to be the individual, the individual that is making the statement for horse racing or against horse racing, because there's mm -hmm. so many different factors. But it is, unfortunately, something that does happen. Now, the fact I think that it's, it appears to be happening more than it should had to do with the, the surface last year, the track at Santa Anita. There was actually something going on with the, the dirt and the amount of rain that we received. There's a short amount of time. All of these little factors uh, contribute to that huge spike. Mm -hmm. And what we were seeing is these fatalities that were happening on track. I'm not a trainer. I could not even begin to explain all of the physiological aspects of dealing with these 1,100-pound animals. But I do understand and I do feel confident that everyone that takes care of the horses, everyone that I've come in contact with, they truly do have the horse's best interest in mind. Obviously, not everyone does that. We had a huge case, and there will be more, where there were trainers that were um, arrested uh, and indicted um, concerns of illegally doping the horses that is going to be a, a situation that i think that horse racing now collectively i think they're going to be they're forced to address it and i think they're going to be a lot better about weeding out those individuals and uh, trying to clean up the game more but it's one of those situations where i cannot even begin to defend anything that happened out there at the track i don't know what's happening i don't know why it's happening at the alarming rate that it is but I do know that my friends are trying hard to, uh, to correct everything, and even the people that are not my friends in the industry, I believe that they are trying as much as they possibly can to fix all of the problems. So I don't well, know when it's going to come around, but man, I hope it does immediately. And we can get to less serious stuff. The, the races themselves that are going on, and if not for TVG, um, you know, the horse racing fans would not be able to get their fix for those who don't know how that works. I mean, you know, people can see horse racing, essentially Australia's got a lot of tracks running, the few ones running here in the U S um, you know, so there is horse racing, even though here, for example, in the North state, we used to have, uh, you know, used to have some racing in San Francisco. We used to have some little bit of racing in Northern California and Shasta County even had for a little while, but not anymore. Thank goodness for TVG. If you're a fan. Yeah, it is one of those things, especially, you know, if you go back about 30 days, especially if you even go back to, let's say, March 15th is the day, I believe, that it's kind of the date that we all understand everything shut down. 
Um, that's kind of the last NBA basketball game I think that we all saw. Uh, I know that was the last time that I was allowed to go into the TVG studio to work. Wow. And then once we gave the order that we couldn't go back into the studio, I've been doing everything from home. But um, from that point on, the only sport you've been able to really to watch is horse racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the beautiful things about horse racing. It's always there. And it's something that they can conduct with just essential personnel. Like you don't need fans in the stands. And then that's where TVG comes in to play. Because if you don't have those fans coming in through the turnstiles to make those wagers, well, where are you getting that money to support the sport? Well, there's where your advanced deposit wagering companies come into effect. And that's where TVG really stepped up and filled a void for a lot of people. Um, and it's not necessarily just about gambling. I mean, obviously, that's an aspect of what we do, and that's been an aspect of what we've done in this country, in this world, in this civilization mm-hmm. since the beginning of time. So it's always going to be there. We just decided to make it easier and more exciting. And uh, I, I think it's been it's one of those things that's really helped me move forward because, you know, we work in sports. Right. So when I shut down all the other sports, I'm, I'm covering the other sports, too. And I'm like, uh, what are we going to do? And so luckily horse racing was there, and it's been a savior. And a lot of people may say within the industry, hey, this is a chance for people outside of the sport to see us, and maybe we'll get some new new fans. I'm like, well, that's a, eh, that's, don't need to really be so opportunistic about this. Mm-hmm. Let's try to be good every single day. Let's just be better. And if somebody sees us, great. And if they want to join along with us, we'll be happy to educate them and show them along, um, show them the ropes and really how to mm, find your way in this really, really tricky, tricky endeavor of picking winning horses. And I, te- I teased it a little, uh, a few minutes ago, but we're, we're going to go to break so we can, uh, we can talk about, um, uh, 15 years ago and one of your podcasts, uh, the latest episode, in fact, on, on believe in horse racing, it's spelled B L E A V. You can find it by Googling and find the believe podcast and you can download believe in horse racing from, uh, pretty much everywhere. I'm sure where you can get podcasts. Ken Rudolph is the host. We'll be back to talk to him about, um, a day when he became legend himself in the world of horse racing and gambling. Uh, when we come back, you're listening to Scorecards, Scribblings. I'm Brent Weber. Ken Rudolph's my guest. Stick with us. Ken Rudolph in the back there. Uh, that's a little bit of Mama's Gravy. Sorry, I don't have any tipsy hustlers to bump in and out of. Ken Rudolph, my guest uh, from the podcast. You know him from the horse racing world. His Believe in Horse Racing podcast available out there. And um, your latest episode that just dropped this past week celebrates something even I, a non-insider, heard about and, and uh, found great joy in 15 years ago. Now let I'm going to intro it. We're going to listen to it, and then you're going to talk about it. Hall of Fame jockey Mike Smith earned his first Kentucky Derby victory. I'm reading this from your Believe.com site, by the way. Fifteen years ago, Hall of Fame jockey Mike Smith earned his first Kentucky Derby win by bringing home 50-to-1 long shot Giacomo. Thus, the legend of Ken Rudolph was born. So let us hear um, from tvg's youtube page one of their great tvg memories 
Ken's Giacomo moment. Let's hear it. Music. One of the longest shots on the board is my number one pick. <laughs> I'm talking about Giacomo. Giacomo breaks his maiden. Mike Smith comes back. And that's my derby horse. And I'm like, what? He's like, just watch him. Just watch him. I'm like, oh, okay. So I just watched him. And this is a horse that did not win another race. Gary's in Louisville. And he's on the phone and Gary's like, hey, let me talk to Ken. I'm like, what's up, man? He's like, your horse looks great. I'm like, really? He just put in this bullet seven for who does a seven furlong workout before the derby? John Sheriff's bullet seven furlong work. And Gary's like, dude, your horse looks good. I'm like, really? And then he says, Mike just said he's ready. And I'm like, that's it. Let's go. And they're off in the Kentucky Derby. Looks like a pretty clean break, right? Yeah. yeah. Wilco, 15th, Greeley's Galaxy, 16th, Giacomo, 17th in between horses, sorted out as 18th. Greater see Giacomo, Ken? What's that? See, you see yeah. Giacomo, right? Yeah. Don't get badly charged on the far outside! Giacomo, Giacomo! Where's he at? Giacomo! In the blue, coming down to the finish, closing argument, short lane, Giacomo, a fleet out! Giacomo! Get it, get it, get it! It's a three-horse photo finish! Get it, get it! Ken! <laughs> I have ever seen. What? Why am I sweating over this? What a tell? It obviously increased my confidence. Not that I needed that. And my comprehension of the sport. And it helped to buy the condo that we still own. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, that is the story from TVG, but that was... What was the bet, Ken? You, you, this was, what year was this? This was 2005, and it was a series of bets because um, we had a thing called future wager, so you kind of had a chance to, to bet your horse, and you still do for derby purposes. You can bet your horse, and sometimes you'll get better odds in the future wager than you would the day of. Um, well, Giacomo was 25 to 1 in the future wager, so I have money on him there, and then I bet again the day of at 50 to 1. And... Um, so collectively, it was a series of bets, and uh, yeah, so it was. I had about a hundred dollars to win that day wow. on the horse. And uh, like people talk about, I'm like, it didn't buy the condo; it just it gave me this confidence, help with the, the closing cost, and I bought like a new sofa and stuff like that. So it, it was that kind of thing where it just kind of helped give me the momentum to to move forward and be a grown up. <laughs> and everything later, that kind of stuff. How many times have you hit a fifty to one uh, long shot in the Derby since? One other time. Yeah. I uh, I hit last year at sixty five to one. I uh, had Country House. Um, so last year's Kentucky Derby winner in two thousand nineteen was via disqualification. The first time it's ever happened in one hundred and forty five runnings of the Kentucky Derby. The the winner was a horse that interfered with horses coming around the turn and. This was another chance to educate the public because the horse almost he almost caused three or four horses to go down. And if a horse goes down on the track, everyone gets hurt. Mm -hmm. So the judges had to disqualify that horse. My horse was running second at 65 to 1. And so he became the winner. Wow. Uh, I, I, I bet that one as well, and it, it worked out. All right, so how about uh, 
we talked a little bit about movies earlier and I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a sap. Um, and, and when it comes to horse racing movies, I mean, obviously I'm a Disney, you know, I, I believe in fantasy. I just saw not too long ago, the secretariat film, there was that I grew up, you know, watching as a kid, that would have been the first time, you know, I would have seen or any of that stuff. Um, what does the industry think about, um, like the film Secretariat, the film Seabiscuit, which were, I think, beautiful movies. Um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, were they behind those films? I think they were, weren't they? Oh yeah. Uh, as far as I could tell, absolutely. Especially when Seabiscuit came along because there are a lot of my, hello. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, I dropped my phone. Sorry, that was my fault. There are a lot of my friends uh, within the industry of horse racing who were brought on to be, you know, the technical riders and to be consultants and to be actors and to be stunt doubles and things like that in Seabiscuit. So I know that they were all part of that. And Gary Ross, who I do believe was the uh, director and screenwriter of Seabiscuit, was uh, prevalent with us at the track. He came out to Breeders' Cup Day. In fact, the day that he was at Breeders' Cup to present the, the guy who made Seabiscuit, we had a dead heat photo finish which had never ever happened in the history of the, this breeders cup race wow. and it's because he was there and we're like man we can't even write this in hollywood and so Holly, everyone was pretty much behind him the secretariat uh, production i'm not as familiar because it took place i do believe they were in kentucky for a lot of that shoot where Probably they were so. shooting sea biscuit a lot in california um but i do believe that the industry was behind it i don't recall hearing any backlash or anyone I don't even remember any complaints about the movie, you know, after the fact. You know how sometimes people will not like the way they represent your sport or your culture. But I don't recall there being any backlash at all with those two movies. I think they were very successful. and They did a really good job of capturing uh, a lot of the hard work and a lot of the magic that yeah. takes place with horses. Have have you become a historian at all in, in terms of horse racing? Or are you um, just you know, learning and living and sharing the moments in, in the, in the industry. Uh, I say that in, because there's some old timers that are around that I'm sure you've met over the years. Um, you know, I, I think I'm more of the latter. I, I do try to be a, a bit of a historian. In fact, part of what I'm doing with this podcast is the entire purpose of the podcast is to bring people in from outside. And it's twofold to bring people into the world of horse racing from outside who are not necessarily familiar with how fun it can be. And also an excuse for me to have a show. Um, and so what I want to do, like this week, I'm super excited because um, I'm doing my first outside of horse racing guest. So my guest is a guy named Steve Gorman. Steve Gorman was the drummer of the Black Crows. Right. Black Crows, all-time favorite band. And so um, being able to connect with Steve over the past year and, and forge a friendship, and then he's decided to come on the show, and he's his band has played at the track and he's gone to the track and he got stories of going to the track. And then we talk about music and sports. And so I just feel like I really want to share a lot of the moments with people. But then there's a different aspect where I, I am quite a historian because there are all these amazing jockeys that I've met and trainers and owners. And then there's also the reason why I got into the sport was the African-American history, the deep tradition that is in horse racing. And I want to bring that back to the forefront. I want to remind people um, how amazing these individuals are, and that there are so many of them here, out here today that are they're African American jockeys that they don't really get a lot of attention. And I don't think it's anything to do with them being uh, any negativity. It's just something that doesn't really get much attention. So that's what I'm here for. So I really just want to share, but I also want to bring a little bit of history in and 
And, and at some point, I'll have guys like Lafitte Pinkai Jr. on the show and Gary Stevens, these really amazing Hall of Fame jockeys, Chris McCarron, these legends, these individuals who'd be on the Mount Rushmore of horse racing <laughs> and have them on the show because there's something really interesting about that aspect of it as well, what those guys went through. And, you know, what you what they when they go through, we don't realize till we see great ones that are injured, uh, you know, how dangerous their job is. The men, not just the horses. Yeah that, was, yeah. yeah, that was one of the things that kind of struck me at the beginning when I first started watching. It was just how, I don't think just how dangerous, dangerous it is, but just how the men and women that are riding these horses approach it. There's a lot of respect for that horse. And and then I just sit, like, there's a, I think, I do believe she is the only female jockey in the Hall of Fame, Julie Crone. Mm-hmm. Julie Crone is this amazing individual who is the tiniest person that you'd ever want to meet. <laughs> but Julie will knock you out. Julie is the strongest little woman I think I've ever seen in my life. And then listen to her tell me stories of how she's handling this 1,200-pound animal. And just how strong they have to be, not just physically, but also mentally. And then the things that they go through to get ready, you know, they have to be at a certain weight. They have to, their, their lifestyle is a certain, it's pretty strict. And they make a lot of sacrifices. And only maybe 5% of them, maybe 5 to 10% of them are, are wealthy. Right. And the rest of them are just, you know, plugging right along. And it's because they really love horses and, and it's really amazing what they do. I just love hearing their stories from day to day. Like Lafitte Pinkai Jr., who was the greatest athlete, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated as the, the greatest athlete, the most fit, the fittest athlete in the country. How about that? The dude's diet was a peanut. <laughs> the dude ate a peanut. He told the story about he ate one half of a peanut on the flight from California to New York, ate the other half coming back. I'm coming on crazy. <laughs> You know, I, I wish I, and we'll have to do this again sometime, but because uh, there there are things that that I think I can experience through you. And that's part of what you do so well. But I remember the first time where I understood uh, greatness in a horse when I had the chance to I was covering Cigar when Cigar was uh, going for a record, I think, 16th straight win. I did not get it. This was down in Del, I believe it was in Del Mar, but I can, I can remember going yeah. in there. And watching that horse in the morning, and um, he loved it. I mean, loved the attention, loved the people. Yeah. He was a star. Do you remember the first one of those you saw? You know, here's the thing about that, Brent. Um, I'm afraid of them. So it took me the longest time yeah. to get up close to a horse. And um, the first horse, I met Giacomo after he won the Kentucky Derby. And he's such a super quiet horse that he wasn't even like meeting a horse. It was really weird. He's a super quiet, sweet little horse. So it was like meeting a dog. Um, but then the first time that I saw Zenyatta, and we got a chance to go back, and I was so afraid I would not go up to her stall. She just has a thing about her where she intimidated the hell out of me, and I was so afraid. Not that she's going to hurt me. No. I just... It was like she was Aretha Franklin, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to go over and talk to her because I have no business talking to Aretha Franklin. Um, so I just like, nope, not going over there. But then the one horse that I did get close to was um, California Chrome. Mm. And uh, California Chrome bit the crap out of my arm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he, like, I was feeding him cookies, 
And uh, I don't know if, if any of the folks that are out there know California Chrome. He's from California. He's a $10,000 horse that was no one expected to do anything. And he went on and earned more than $14 million. He won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. I mean, just an amazing horse. Uh, his owners are friends of mine. So I went down. CBS sent me down to do stories. I'm feeding him cookies. And I turned my back. And he grabbed my forearm and he held on. And if you've ever been bit by a horse, <laughs> it's no bueno, man. It is not good. Um, so I think that's probably the, one of the few times I've been close to horses, but I'm afraid of them. And then California Chrome reminded me why I should be afraid of some of them. But most of them are super sweet. Like Giacomo was like a, like a dog. He was like a puppy dog. He was so, so sweet. Enjoy them awesome. from a distance. Enjoy them through the eyes <laughs> and voice of uh, our guest tonight, his podcast is Believe, B-L-E-A-V, in horse racing. Ken Rudolph doesn't just talk about horse racing. At Mr. Ken Rudolph TV, R-U-D-U-L-P-H, on Instagram, Twitter, and more. We're over time. Thanks so much, Ken, for joining us. Uh, much love to you, my brother, and I hope that uh, you continue to enjoy great success and happiness in the world of sports and beyond. Much love to you, Brother Grant. I appreciate it, man. Have a fantastic day. See you next time. Hey, thanks again to Ken Rudolph. Had to kind of go over on the air there on the radio station. And uh, glad we can do this podcast thing. Thanks to Jared King, my producer. And don't forget, scorecardscribblings.com. You can learn more about all my guests. You can hear some past guests and find us on the podcast network uh, wherever you download yours. Ken's is B-L-E-A-V. Just type in B-L-E-A-V podcast you'll find his horse racing podcast there which appreciate him taking time to do that thanks for downloading this one send me any feedback you got brent at scorecardscribblings.com see you later see you next time <laughs>